Chapter Twelve of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twelve. Two tall bearded white men moved cautiously through the jungle from their camp beside a wide river. They were Carl Jensen and Sven Malbin, but little altered in appearance since the day years before that they and their safari had been so badly frightened by Korak and Akut as the former sought haven with them. Every year had they come into the jungle to trade with the natives, or to rob them, to hunt and trap, or to guide other white men in the land they knew so well. Always since their experience with the sheik had they operated at a safe distance from his territory. Now they were closer to his village than they had been for years, yet safe enough from discovery, owing to the uninhabited nature of the intervening jungle and the fear and enmity of Kovudu's people for the sheik, who in time past had raided and all but exterminated the tribe. This year they had come to trap live specimens for a European zoological garden, and today they were approaching a trap which they had set in the hope of capturing a specimen of the large baboons that frequented the neighborhood. As they approached the trap they became aware from the noises emanating from its vicinity that their efforts had been crowned with success. The barking and screaming of hundreds of baboons could mean naught else than that one or more of their number had fallen a victim to the allurements of the bait. The extreme caution of the two men was prompted by former experiences with the intelligent and dog-like creatures with which they had to deal. More than one trapper has lost his life in battle with enraged baboons who will hesitate to attack nothing upon one occasion, while upon another a single gunshot will disperse hundreds of them. Heretofore the Swedes had always watched nearby their trap, for as a rule only the stronger bulls are thus caught, since in their greediness they prevent the weaker from approaching the covered bait, and when once within the ordinary rude trap woven on the spot of interlaced branches they are able, with the aid of their friends upon the outside, to demolish their prison and escape. But in this instance the trappers had utilized a special steel cage which could withstand all the strength and cunning of a baboon. It was only necessary, therefore, to drive away the herd which they knew were surrounding the prison, and wait for their boys who were even now following them to the trap. As they came within sight of the spot they found conditions precisely as they had expected. A large male was battering frantically against the steel wires of the cage that held him captive. Upon the outside several hundred other baboons were tearing and tugging in his aid, and all were roaring and jabbering and barking at the top of their lungs. But what neither the Swedes nor the baboons saw was the half-naked figure of a youth hidden in the foliage of a nearby tree. He had come upon the scene at almost the same instant as Jensen and Malbin, and was watching the activities of the baboons with every mark of interest. Korak's relations with the baboons had never been over-friendly. A species of armed toleration had marked their occasional meetings. The baboons and Akut had walked stiff-legged and growling past one another, while Korak had maintained a bared-fang neutrality so now he was not greatly disturbed by the predicament of their king. Curiosity prompted him to tarry a moment, and in that moment his quick eyes caught the unfamiliar coloration of the clothing of the two Swedes behind a bush not far from him. 
Now he was all alertness. Who were these interlopers? What was their business in the jungle of the Mangani? Korak slunk noiselessly around them to a point where he might get their scent, as well as a better view of them, and scarce had he done so when he recognized them. They were the men who had fired upon him years before. His eyes blazed. He could feel the hairs upon his scalp stiffen at the roots. He watched them with the intentness of a panther about to spring upon its prey. He saw them rise, and shouting, attempt to frighten away the baboons as they approached the cage. Then one of them raised his rifle and fired into the midst of the surprised and angry herd. For an instant Korak thought that the baboons were about to charge, but two more shots from the rifles of the white men sent them scampering into the trees. Then the two Europeans advanced upon the cage. Korak thought that they were going to kill the king. He cared nothing for the king, but he cared less for the two white men. The king had never attempted to kill him. The white men had. The king was a denizen of his own beloved jungle. The white men were aliens. His loyalty, therefore, was to the baboon against the human. He could speak the language of the baboon. It was identical to that of the great apes. Across the clearing he saw the jabbering horde watching. Raising his voice, he shouted to them. The white men turned at the sound of this new factor behind them. They thought it was another baboon that had circled them. But though they searched the trees with their eyes, they saw nothing of the now silent figure hidden by the foliage. Again Korak shouted. "'I am the killer!' he cried. "'These men are my enemies and yours. I will help you free your king.' Run out upon the strangers when you see me do so, and together we will drive them away and free your king. And from the baboons came the great chorus, We will do what you say, Korak. Dropping from his tree, Korak ran toward the two Swedes, and at the same instant three hundred baboons followed his example. At sight of the strange apparition of the half-naked white warrior rushing upon them with uplifted spear, Jensen and Malbin raised their rifles and fired at Korak, but in the excitement both missed, and a moment later the baboons were upon them. Now their only hope of safety lay in escape, and dodging here and there, fighting off the great beasts that leaped upon their backs, they ran into the jungle. Even then they would have died but for the coming of their men whom they met a couple of hundred yards from the cage. Once the white men had turned in flight, Korak gave them no further attention, turning instead to the imprisoned baboon. The fastenings of the door, that had eluded the mental powers of the baboons, yielded their secret immediately to the human intelligence of the killer, and a moment later the king baboon stepped forth to liberty. He wasted no breath in thanks to Korak, nor did the young man expect thanks. He knew that none of the baboons would ever forget his service, though, as a matter of fact, he did not care if they did. What he had done had been prompted by a desire to be revenged upon the two white men. The baboons could never be of service to him. Now they were racing in the direction of the battle that was being waged between their fellows and the followers of the two Swedes, and as the din of battle subsided in the distance, Korak turned and resumed his journey toward the village of Kovudu. On the way he came upon a herd of elephants standing in an open forest glade. Here the trees were too far apart to permit Korak to travel through the branches, a trail he much preferred not only because of its freedom from dense underbrush and the wider field of vision it gave him, but from pride in his arboreal ability. It was exhilarating to swing from tree to tree, 
to test the prowess of his mighty muscles, to reap the pleasurable fruits of his hard-won agility. Korak joyed in the thrills of the high-flung upper terraces of the great forest, where, unhampered and unhindered, he might laugh down upon the great brutes who must keep forever to the darkness and the gloom of the musty soil. But here, in this open glade, where Tantor flapped his giant ears and swayed his huge bulk from side to side, the ape-man must pass along the surface of the ground, a pygmy amongst giants. A great bull raised his trunk to rattle a low warning as he sensed the coming of an intruder. His weak eyes roved hither and thither, but it was his keen scent and acute hearing which first located the ape-man. The herd moved restlessly, prepared for fight, for the old bull had caught the scent of man. "'Peace, Tantor,' called the killer. "'It is I, Korak, Tarmangani.' The bull lowered his trunk, and the herd resumed their interrupted meditations. Korak passed within a foot of the great bull. A sinuous trunk undulated toward him, touching his brown hide in a half-caress. Korak slapped the great shoulder affectionately as he went by. For years he had been upon good terms with Tantor and his people. Of all the jungle folk, he loved best the mighty pachyderm, the most peaceful and at the same time the most terrible of them all. The gentle gazelle feared him not, yet Numa, lord of the jungle, gave him a wide berth. Among the younger bulls, the cows and the calves, Korak wound his way. Now and then another trunk would run out to touch him, and once a playful calf grasped his legs and upset him. The afternoon was almost spent when Korak arrived at the village of Kovudu. There were many natives lolling in shady spots beside the conical huts or beneath the branches of the several trees which had been left standing within the enclosure. Warriors were in evidence upon hand. It was not a good time for a lone enemy to prosecute a search through the village. Korak determined to await the coming of darkness. He was a match for many warriors, but he could not unaided overcome an entire tribe, not even for his beloved Miriam. While he waited among the branches and foliage of a nearby tree, he searched the village constantly with his keen eyes, and twice he circled it, sniffing the vagrant breezes which puffed erratically from first one point of the compass and then another. Among the various stenches peculiar to a native village, the ape-man's sensitive nostrils were finally rewarded by cognizance of the delicate aroma which marked the presence of her he sought. Miriam was there in one of those huts, but which one he could not know without closer investigation, and so he waited, with the dogged patience of a beast of prey, until night had fallen. The campfires of the blacks dotted the gloom with little points of light, casting their feeble rays in tiny circles of luminosity that brought into glistening relief the naked bodies of those who lay or squatted about them. It was then that Korak slid silently from the tree that had hidden him, and dropped lightly to the ground within the enclosure. Keeping well in the shadows of the huts, he commenced a systematic search of the village, ears, eyes, and nose constantly upon the alert for the first intimation of the near presence of Miriam. His progress must of necessity be slow, since not even the keen-eared curs of the savages must guess the presence of a stranger within the gates. How close he came to a detection on several occasions, the killer well knew from the restless whining of several of them. 
It was not until he reached the back of a hut at the head of the wide village street that Korak caught again plainly the scent of Miriam. With nose close to the thatched wall, Korak sniffed eagerly about the structure, tense and palpitant as a hunting hound. Toward the front and the door he made his way once his nose had assured him that Miriam lay within. But as he rounded the side and came within view of the entrance, he saw a burly negro armed with a long spear squatting at the portal of the girl's prison. The fellow's back was toward him, his figure outlined against the glow of cooking fires further down the street. He was alone. The nearest of his fellows were beside a fire sixty or seventy feet beyond. To enter the hut, Korak must either silence the sentry or pass him unnoticed. The danger in the accomplishment of the former alternative lay in the practical certainty of alarming the warriors nearby and bringing them and the balance of the village down upon him. To achieve the latter appeared practically impossible. To you or me it would have been impossible, but Korak the killer was not as you or I. There was a good twelve inches of space between the broad back of the black and the frame of the doorway. Could Korak pass through behind the savage warrior without detection? The light that fell upon the glistening ebony of the sentry's black skin fell also upon the light brown of Korak's. Should one of the many further down the street chance to look long in this direction, they must surely note that tall, light-colored moving figure. But Korak depended upon their interest in their own gossip to hold their attention fast where it already lay and upon the firelight near them to prevent them seeing too plainly at a distance into the darkness at the village end where his work lay. Flattened against the side of the hut, yet not arousing a single warning rustle from its dried thatching, the killer came closer and closer to the watcher. Now he was at his shoulder. Now he had wormed his sinuous way behind him. He could feel the heat of the naked body against his knees. He could hear the man breathe. He marveled that the dull-witted creature had not long since been alarmed, but the fellow sat there as ignorant of the presence of another as though that other had not existed. Korak moved scarcely more than an inch at a time. Then he would stand motionless for a moment. Thus was he worming his way behind the guard when the latter straightened up, opened his cavernous mouth in a wide yawn, and stretched his arms above his head. Korak stood rigid as stone. Another step, and he would be within the hut. The black lowered his arms and relaxed. Behind him was the framework of the doorway. Often before had it supported his sleepy head, and now he leaned back to enjoy the forbidden pleasure of a catnap. But instead of the doorframe his head and shoulders came in contact with the warm flesh of a pair of living legs. The exclamation of surprise that almost burst from his lips was throttled in his throat by steel-thewed fingers that closed about his windpipe with the suddenness of thought. The black struggled to arise, to turn upon the creature that had seized him, to wriggle from its hold, but all to no purpose. As he had been held in a mighty vice of iron, he could not move. He could not scream. Those awful fingers at his throat but closed more and more tightly. His eyes bulged from their sockets. His face turned an ashy blue. Presently he relaxed once more, this time in the final dissolution from which there is no quickening. Korak propped the dead body against the door frame. There it sat, lifelike in the gloom. 
Then the ape-man turned and glided into the stygian darkness of the hut's interior. Miriam, he whispered. Korak, my Korak, came an answering cry, subdued by fear of alarming her captors, and half-stifled by a sob of joyful welcome. The youth knelt and cut the bonds that held the girl's wrists and ankles. A moment later he had lifted her to her feet, and grasping her by the hand, led her towards the entrance. Outside the grim sentinel of death kept his grisly vigil. Sniffing at his dead feet whined a mangy native cur. At sight of the two emerging from the hut, the beast gave an ugly snarl, and an instant later, as it caught the scent of the strange white man, it raised a series of excited yelps. Instantly the warriors at the nearby fire were attracted. They turned their heads in the direction of the commotion. It was impossible that they could fail to see the white skins of the fugitives. Korak slunk quickly into the shadows at the hut's side, drawing Miriam with him, but he was too late. The blacks had seen enough to arouse their suspicions, and a dozen of them were now running to investigate. The yapping cur was still at Korak's heels, leading the searchers unerringly in pursuit. The youth struck viciously at the brute with his long spear, but long accustomed to dodging blows, the wily creature made a most uncertain target. Other blacks had been alarmed by the running and shouting of their companions, and now the entire population of the village was swarming up the street to assist in the search. Their first discovery was the dead body of the sentry, and a moment later one of the bravest of them had entered the hut and discovered the absence of the prisoner. These startling announcements filled the blacks with a combination of terror and rage, but seeing no foe in evidence they were enabled to permit their rage to get the better of their terror, and so the leaders, pushed on by those behind them, ran rapidly around the hut in the direction of the yapping of the mangy cur. Here they found a single white warrior making away with their captive, and recognizing him as the author of numerous raids and indignities, and believing that they had him cornered, and at a disadvantage, they charged savagely upon him. Korak, seeing that they were discovered, lifted Miriam to his shoulders, and ran for the tree which would give them egress from the village. He was handicapped in his flight by the weight of the girl, whose legs would but scarce bear her weight, to say nothing of maintaining her in rapid flight for the tightly drawn bonds that had been about her ankles for so long had stopped circulation and partially paralyzed her extremities. Had this not been the case, the escape of the two would have been a feat of little moment, since Miriam was scarcely a whit less agile than Korak, and fully as much at home in the trees as he. But with the girl on his shoulder, Korak could not both run and fight to advantage, and the result was that before he had covered half the distance to the tree, a score of native curs attracted by the yelping of their mate and the yells and shouts of their masters had closed in upon the fleeing white man, snapping at his legs, and at last succeeding in tripping him. As he went down, the hyena-like brutes were upon him, and as he struggled to his feet the blacks closed in. A couple of them seized the clawing, biting Miriam, and subdued her. A blow upon the head was sufficient. For the ape-man they found more drastic measures would be necessary. Weighted down as he was by dogs and warriors, he still managed to struggle to his feet. 
To right and left he swung crushing blows to the faces of his human antagonists. To the dogs he paid not the slightest attention, other than to seize the more persistent and wring their necks with a single quick movement of the wrist. A knob-stick aimed at him by an ebon Hercules he caught and wrested from his antagonist, and then the blacks experienced to the full the possibilities for punishment that lay within those smooth-flowing muscles, beneath the velvet-brown skin of the strange white giant. He rushed among them with all the force and ferocity of a bull-elephant gone mad. Hither and thither he charged, striking down the few who had the temerity to stand against him, and it was evident that unless a chance spear-thrust brought him down he would rout the entire village and regain his prize. But old Kovudu was not to be so easily robbed of the ransom which the girl represented, and seeing that their attack, which had up to now resulted in a series of individual combats with the white warrior, he called his tribesmen off, and forming them in a compact body about the girl and the two who watched over her bid them do nothing more than repel the assaults of the ape-man again and again korak rushed against this human barricade bristling with spear-points again and again he was repulsed often with severe wounds to caution him to greater wariness from head to foot he was red with his own blood and at last weakening from the loss of it he came to the bitter realization that alone he could do no more to succor his Miriam. Presently an idea flashed through his brain. He called aloud to the girl. She had regained consciousness now, and replied. "'Korak goes,' he shouted, "'but he will return and take you from the Gomangani. "'Good-bye, my Miriam. "'Korak will come for you again.' "'Good-bye,' cried the girl. "'Miriam will look for you until you come.' Like a flash, and before they could know his intention or prevent him, Korak wheeled, raced across the village, and with a single leap disappeared into the foliage of the great tree that was his high road to the village of Kovudu. A shower of spears followed him, but their only harvest was a taunting laugh flung back from out the darkness of the jungle. End of chapter 12